0: Hi, folks. This is Brian Moriarty, your Nerds on History co-host. On our podcast, we have shared lots of interesting facts, like the fact that George Washington was a cross-dresser and that Thurgood Marshall knew jiu-jitsu. If you find those things insightful and funny, well, oh, have we got a podcast for you. Nerds on Film. It's like the Nerds on History podcast, but with a lot more swear words and no filter whatsoever. Enjoy.
1: Brian, I got to be honest with you. I'm feeling a little bit... Um... A little intimidated about tonight. Really? You know, I I, I read into the topic and I did a little research, but I I feel like, I just feel like I don't know enough back history about all of this, and I I just feel like I don't know the meat of everything that we're going to be getting to tonight. Okay. Well, I mean, you've had plenty of time to do research on this topic, so... I know, I I, I just don't know if I have the chops to do it. You know, I just, I feel like I'm a little lean... A little gamey, if you will. Uh, so, what are you saying? Are you saying you're not going to do the episode? No, I'm not saying that at all. I just, I feel like you, 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 you're probably going to have to take the bigger cut. And, uh, you know, the biggest stake in all of this <sighs> is really going to come down to you. Fine. Wait, you were just trying to make
0: puns about the episode, aren't you? Yeah. <laughs>
1: Welcome to Nerds on History. I am Eric Brickmont. And I'm Brian Moriarty. Hello, oh, my- sir. He- Hello. How are you, sir? Good. It's kind of weird you're sitting right next to me now. Yeah, I know. I'm. I'm. I'm it's kind of strange for me, too. But uh, normally I'm used to just staring you down and intimidating you while we're recording. And now, now I have to stare the, at the screen instead. <laughs> I don't know what to do with myself. Yeah, yeah indeed.
0: I, normally we would talk about listener feedback at this point, but we we don't really have much because our episode went live like six hours ago. Something like that, yeah. You know? Yeah, we... We'd Changed up our uh, our schedule, so guys, we, we apologize if you were expecting our episode live at 7 a.m. for last week. We're we're still gonna post them on Mondays as we usually do. Just it's we're gonna try to be less stressed about when we release it. So when we have time to do it, we will do it. We'll definitely try to do it by by uh, the very least by 1 p.m. I think it'll be the latest we do it at so
1: for our australian listeners that would be next week sometime
0: <laughs> exactly yeah
1: and uh we're i'm actually i'm super excited dude how about you i'm reasonably excited for someone who just got off of work and rushed over here as quickly yeah, as exactly as possible. Uh, but we, yes i am i am very excited
0: yeah and, and
1: we've got a lot of stuff going on this has been a big week for us
0: well we now have a, a new social media presence we've got our character alan uh is now on
1: twitter and has a facebook page which so. is so ironic considering he's a hipster and would not normally want to do any of those things but
0: i actually wanted to be on friendster but uh, they're not taking <gasps> invitations to join anymore so
1: yeah <laughs> well sorry you alan it. you're just gonna have to s- s- you know live with facebook and twitter for the moment then
0: exactly um but you can uh, tweet him up at intrusive alan and of course you can you're welcome to like his facebook page as well
1: alan the intrusive hipster ghost yes indeed you can find him on facebook you can find him of course on our website as well you can find all the yeah and you know you'll hear him basically Tear apart our pop culture um, by saying
0: it's all too mainstream. So, aside from that, we've got another big thing in, to talk about because we've had guests on our show before, and we've never had a PhD. No, we haven't on the show,
1: and we've never had a published author either, which is really fantastic. And yeah, we that are, is, a, we're lucky to have both of those in, in one actual guest, one whole guest, yeah, is all of this. Today, that all changes. Today, we now have the complete package, as it were, <laughs> of guests. I'm sorry, Maureen. We just described you as the complete package. I hope you're okay with that.
2: Yeah. I Yeah. Boy, now I'm worried. (laughs) (laughs) It's
1: okay. So uh, our
0: guest is, has a PhD from Iowa State University in American history with a focus on technology. And the reason why she's here today is to talk about her new book, which is entitled In Meatly Trust, An Unexpected History of Carnivore America. So we'd like to welcome to the show Maureen Ogle. (laughs) Thank you for having me. Thank you. No, thank you for um, being open to our schedule and for recording because it, it's kind of late where you are. It's like nine o'clock right from where you're at. Right.
2: Right. Well, it's now 9.13. That's right. And I'm old. I'm old enough to be your grandmother, I'm sure. And so, yeah. If I start, you know, doddering and slobbering, it's because I'm actually falling asleep.
1: So you're a good four or five hours past your bedtime at this point then. <laughs> Well, we, we have a variety of obnoxious sounds ready to go to wake you up at a moment's notice. So if you hear any kind of snoring or what have you, we'll, we'll be sure to uh, give you a little little cattle prod in the right direction. All
2: right. All right.
1: Uh, so I, I'm very curious. So from what I was reading, PhD
0: in American history with a focus on technology. That's really interesting. Uh, what drove you to w- want to learn about that topic?
2: Um, a- actually, nothing. <laughs> um, I got my PhD in 1992. Oh, okay. I- I went to school in, um, I was old when I went to school, frankly. Uh, I got my, yeah. So I went to graduate school, frankly, during the late 1980s and early 1990s now. okay, And I was old when I started. So now you can start doing some math. Anyway, um, frankly, what my big plan was, I didn't really want to be a waitress with a high school education anymore. Mm -hmm. And I was already an adult, right? I mean, I was old, so. I think what drove me to it was that I wanted a job where I didn't have to wait tables. So <laughs> I went to school and then ended up with a PhD. I got honestly, looking back, it's a miracle that any of it happened because I, I didn't even know anybody who'd gone to college, let alone have a PhD. It was kind of embarrassing in retrospect. Well, that's <laughs> a
0: big motivator, though. I mean, I, I could understand why, you know, you didn't want to be making minimum wage <laughs> for your whole life. So, um, And I think it's probably in those... Moments where you achieve uh, a level that you never thought you were going to reach, and that sounds like what happened in your story. So, that's great.
2: Yeah, yeah. My, if someone had told me uh, 25 years ago that I would be what I'm doing, what I'm doing now, I would have said, "Well, what drugs did you just take? Tell, <laughs> right. you, tell me what. What. What are you on? Yeah. Yeah. So, yes, my life it did not quite go the way I never planned to go.
0: <laughs> well, and it never does, does it? For our listeners, you know, she's written on very eclectic series of topics. I mean, she's written a book on beer, she's written a book on plumbing. And so I'm kind of curious, what was your uh, what intrigued you about the history of, of meat and uh, like what what kind of drew you into wanting to do research about that?
2: Well, I should also add there's one more book in there, a history of Key West, Florida, which makes the whole thing even weirder, right? Although I do, I do have a joke if we run out of things to talk about, I do. So, want to talk about folks,
0: If you are a tourist who is very interested in learning how the plumbing in Key West, Florida uh, is made in their microbreweries, she is the absolute authority
1: on that topic. I I hear you can also get a killer steak there as well. Exactly.
2: Well, actually, yeah. Here's here's my take on it. You know, you're sitting on a beach on Key West, right? Sunning away and drinking some beer. And then pretty soon you do need to use some plumbing. Exactly. And then after a while, you're hungry, so you go down to Duval Street and have a cheeseburger in Paradise. And if you don't know who Jimmy Buffett is, then the whole joke falls flat.
0: <laughs> oh no! It's, my dad loves cheeseburger in Paradise. He he was talking about the last time, one of the last times he was in Hawaii with my stepmom. Uh, they had cheeseburgers for breakfast. Oh yeah, <laughs> because they're open because they were open that early. It's like it was.
2: Well, and they were in Paradise, right? So there you go. Exactly. Exactly.
0: Well it's just meat, bread
1: and cheese. I mean, that yeah. is essentially breakfast foods anyhow. Yeah. It's just all in one.
0: Uh, again, what was the uh, what drew you into the meat topic? Because obviously you'd written about beer, so you weren't and you weren't a stranger to, to the food topic in general, but
2: um, yeah, but that I, I now I'm now I'm just gonna out myself as arguably one of the world's weirdest people ever, or maybe not, I'm not sure. Um, actually nothing drove it to me except that my brain told me to do it. And okay. that is actually how I came up with all four book topics. I learned very early on that if I just wait, my brain will do the heavy lifting and it will tell me what to do. Like the beer book, I was just driving down the street minding my own business and a couple of blocks away I saw a beer truck and I didn't, I didn't drink beer and didn't know anything about beer. But I thought, well, hey, that sounds like a really interesting topic. Uh, same thing with the meat book I mean how I came up with it is just so weird that its almost kind of embarrassing so uh, so I, I you know my attitude is if I my brain will just tell me what to do and the sort of thematic device unintentional on my part that li- one of the things that links all these books is that as a historian I'm really interested in what it means to be an American and oh, okay in what ways do I interact with the world that are driven you know are shaped because i'm an american and how how is it that i want to interact with the world because i'm an american so that you know i knew right away when i came up with the when my brain came up with the meat book idea that this would be a really really good way to um, kind of dig deeper into american culture the american psyche and so
1: forth. Wow. <laughs> wow. Maureen, I think we must be kindred spirits because this is pretty much how we come up with all of our topics for Nerds on History as well. They're all pretty much spontaneous, just off the moment, off the cuff remarks that you know spawned it in our minds and or driving around and were inspired by something we saw. And uh, I hope your next book is on podcasting. Maybe, maybe we'll, <laughs> we'll influence go. you tonight.
2: Oh, well, there you go. Yeah, you know, if, I mean, people don't, I think the brain is an underestimated organ myself, you know, it, it really is amazing how much work your brain will do if you just get out of its way, you know, and then it will just yeah. sort of give you, you'll, you can reap its riches after, it'll say, okay, I'm done now, here you go, you know, you got it, go for it.
1: Absolutely, there's, there's, yeah. There's... So Maureen, why don't we go ahead and take a quick tour of the topic then? Why don't you, um, why don't you start us off and give us a little bit of perspective on how exactly meat Came to America and, and why it has evolved into what it is today.
2: I, what I really tried to do on the book was was look at meat as a cultural whole, and so it's not a book about the meat industry, and it's not a culinary history, which would be the two obvious things that most people think. It's you know it's, it must be a business history or it must be a culinary history, um, and but I was really more interested in how Americans have tackled the problem of satisfying their carnivorous desires, which I discovered right off the bat, they had carnivorous desires in abundance. Um, the, first, the first chapter of the book, the, the, the opening of the book, looks at, at this rather singular fact about Americans during the colonial period, and I mean really early in the American colonial period, in the early 1600s, Americans developed an extraordinary sense of entitlement about the role of meat in their diet. They had come from the old world, obviously where both, you know, food and land were in very short supply. The great cultural shock for people who settled North America then was a sheer abundance of land. If you had land, what couldn't you do? And what those people did was realize, wow, we couldn't eat meat in the old world, but there is nothing to stop us from eating meat here. So that was one of the factors that shaped not only the book for me, once once I realized that, it kind of confirmed something I think I had already intuited, but, but that sense of entitlement became sort of a hook for the rest of the book. So once I understood that, or as well as I could be expected to understand it, then I um, proceeded to look deeper, you know, f- over a very long span of time on how Americans um, have sort of acted out that sense of entitlement. So the, the first couple, the first three chapters of the book um, get us up to the 1920s, but then the rest of the book is devoted to the 20th century because that's where, as many of you probably know, that's, meat in America Today is very controversial, a fact that I became aware of as I was researching the book. Yeah, so, yeah. so I sort of shaped the second half of the book, Uh, almost kind of accidentally by what I was starting to understand about meat in our own times, if that makes sense.
0: Yeah, so you were talking about how the American colonialist was very entitled about meat. I'm actually very curious to know, um, from your research, like how often was the average European eating meat, and how often was the colonial... Uh, American eating meat?
2: In the old world, there are there are actually not a whole lot of records to, to tell us, but what few records there are indicate that in the old world, the only people who would have eaten meat regularly would have been very powerful, wealthy people, particularly nobility. But the average schmo, you know, one of us folks, would have been lucky if they had meat once a week. Or, you know, the time of year they would have had the most meat would have been probably in the autumn when they might have slaughtered an animal. But colonial Americans were eating meat two or three times a day, every day. And that fact just shocked people who came to visit. They could hardly believe that there were ordinary people who had access to so much meat. It was quite remarkable.
0: Yeah, when I think about the American diet now... So much of it is contingent <laughs> on having a meat as your as your basis. I would almost even argue to the point where, like, our modern sense of nutrition pivots off of the, having a primary source of protein, which is usually meat. Um, so it it is very interesting to see how much that has influenced the way we think about health uh, today, too, because of these foundations that were in place.
1: And I, I I also find just the psychological impact that that had. I mean, coming from a world where the, the best you could probably muster up was, you know, some bits of, of moldy bread from time to time and, and a bit of cheese and whatever dairy products you could kind of muster up and from the animals that you kept on your farm or what have you. To then going and eating a more or less lavish, like having a lavish lifestyle must have been absolutely, you know, as Maureen's point is, empowering. Uh, it gave us this, this real sense that, you know, not only are we coming in and making a new land for ourselves, but we're also doing it uh, like a king. And who needs kings if we're all kings? Right.
2: I've really had a long time to think about food. I spent, I spent seven years on this book, so I, mm. I spent a lot of time thinking about this stuff. And one, one thing that I honestly never thought about was how much that role of um, abundant, low-cost food has really shaped who we think we are. I mean, w- right now there's this great debate in the United States raging about, you know, our allegedly broken food system. And I think only in a world where food is unbelievably abundant and extraordinarily cheap can anybody sit around and and complain that their food system is broken. To me, that's just crazy, but but it's been that I mean this is just who we are it's like it's really like in our DNA you know I mean having a lot of food and particularly a lot of meat really really has been a more powerful factor in um, shaping us than I ever would have realized as a nation and our sort of you know self not just our national identity but but that identity of course also translates at a personal level you know if you go to Europe you sort of expect to eat the way an American does right you get kind of annoyed if you can't so yeah Yeah. it's um, it's had a huge impact over the centuries.
0: No, certainly, and what I think about right away is, well, we have a collective legend about what America is, right? And I think one of the things right. that you know, we we think of America innately as the land of of plenty, and it probably was because when the explorers got here, it's like, well, God, there's there's land everywhere, yeah, and there's and there's bison everywhere, <laughs> like we are never gonna go hungry, you know, and I'm sure that is what contributed to that mindset. And now it's tough because we're what our population is what 350 million around that, yeah, yeah. not more. Not we're not running out of space cuz honestly we could all fit inside Montana, but but the space that we had that we were using to to cultivate food is is changing, you mm-hmm. know. We're learning more a lot more about the health costs that come with overly processed food, which is a relatively new Concept that's only like what sixty years old if I'm not mistaken. So um I mean, yeah, it just
1: it's it is very interesting. I will say one, um, one thing I do love to remind all my vegetarian friends is if it wasn't for mankind's decision to not only eat meat but also cook meat, we would have never had the uh, the brain power develop to the point where we could decide not to eat meat. And uh, meat has been there forever. It's been there for thousands and thousands of years. And Maureen, I have a An interest, more than an interest, I've been studying uh, ancient history for many, many years. And it's fascinating to see where we have come because, you know, by the time we got to America, sure, now we have this great uh, and bountiful feast that we could have three times a day, eating meat three times a day. And if the average European was eating meat maybe once a week or less than that, think about their ancient counterparts. I mean, if you were in ancient Egypt, you ate meat maybe once in your lifetime. And I'm not kidding. I mean, you, you used your animals as these beasts of burden and you didn't really think of them as, as being a food source unless you were of that extreme uh, wealth and, right. and upper class. But that has just evolved and changed as, as animal husbandry has evolved and changed and how we have taken our animals and moved them from these beasts of burden to making room for them on our dinner plates.
0: Yeah. So then really, when you're talking about meat, you're, are you talk, you're talking mostly about beef basically or are you talking about pork and, and poultry as well?
2: Yes, ta- I decided to focus on all three, which you know struck me as the most rational thing to do. I, you know, there was no way I had time, or frankly, even the inclination to deal with things like bison, which is very hip right now, or mm-hmm. goat, which is not a part of the mainstream culture in the United States, or even mutton, which has not been part of mainstream culture in the United States for a very long time. I focused on okay. those three, the primary meats, the, the overwhelming majority of what we eat. As in terms of meat, is um, in order of quantity, poultry, beef, and pork.
0: I'm just going to say it right now. I have a dynamite recipe for goat fajitas. They're delightful. Thank, Thank you, you, Alan. Alan. <laughs> 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 yeah, he just kind of pops in time to time. Don't mind him. He's harmless. Go- goat fajitas are delicious. I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> Well, technically, actually, ironically, it's not really a fajita unless it's skirt steak. Like, that's what fajita actually means. It's oh. the Spanish word for skirt steak. Anyway. Thanks, Brian. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, sorry. I, well, I think, sorry, Alan, for, you know, making a, a faux pas like that. Uh, okay, so you focused on all three. So then oh, what I'm more curious of is now, so where does it go from, uh, let's say, post-revolution and, say, to the antebellum period? Like, what's, what does the meat intake look like? Is it about the same or has it gotten – is it increased –
2: we've actually been very very consistent about our meat consumption. I as near and again, there are not a lot of records of of uh, per capita consumption for the entire 19th century, but as near as I could tell or as near as anybody could tell, there was actually probably statistically a bit of a decline in the 19th century in large part because the country grew so quickly and it was difficult for supplies to, you know, to keep pace. But the story, to me, really started to get interesting once I got myself out of the colonial period because these days, uh, as you may or may not know, and you and your listeners may or may not know, there's a tremendous controversy about uh, feeding corn to cattle.
0: No, absolutely.
2: Thanks uh, to Michael Pollan's book, Omnivore's Dilemma. So I was quite intrigued to discover yep. that during the colonial period, Americans had developed a very, a fairly sophisticated system for... Um, finishing, the the technical term is finishing, for finishing cattle on corn. So it's not like that, contrary to what Michael Pollan suggests in his book, Omnivorous Dilemma, um, um, that did not start because of big corporate farmers after World War II. Americans, By the time the revolution was over and Americans began pouring into the continental interior, which they could because now the land belonged to the new United States, they took this system with them. And by the 1830s and 1840s, all along the Ohio River, which was the main highway in and out of the American interior at the time.
0: It makes sense. Uh, it was the gateway to the West, pretty much. So right,
2: so, so. right. Uh, yeah. that, that whole terrain was, uh, was landscaped with uh, corn being raised for cattle, which were grazing while they were waiting to be finished so they could then be shipped or actually driven first overland and then later shipped by rail to cities on the East Coast. Uh, along with hogs. So I I was surprised at how very quickly big, sophisticated commercial livestock industry emerged in in the interior, and how quickly Americans accommodated that system as they began moving into cities, which is one of the big stories in the 19th century.
0: Right, yeah.
2: States, the shift off farms into cities. And, you know, of course, City people don't make their own food. So Americans built this infrastructure, this very complicated and nationwide infrastructure to supply themselves with meat, which, again, I guess I shouldn't have been surprised at because I'd already figured out that Americans had this sense of entitlement. So if they wanted meat, <laughs> they were going to figure out how to get it.
0: No, totally. I mean, it's no shock that we... I think we all have to kind of... It's the first step to solving the problem is admitting that you have a problem, and that's that we're all entitled bastards. So... um <laughs> So uh, I'm glad you brought that up because if you didn't, I was going to. You know, the, the landscape of America changed so dramatically from, you know, 1800 to 1900, purely on urbanization alone. Right. Um, that, yeah, it makes sense that you have to kind of change how you cultivate meat. So, to, I mean, I, I've actually read The Omnivore's Dilemma. I read it in college. So I, I kind of know the argument. But you're saying that grain-fed meat actually predates World War II. It's back to the industrial oh, era. Oh, oh.
2: Yes, absolutely. You know, and I and I explain that in the book. And again, um, I should, uh, let me just interject this about Michael Pollan because I get asked about him a lot. I'm uh, sure.
0: Yeah, obviously. Yeah. The,
2: the weird yeah. thing about this book, when I decided to write it, I honestly didn't know the first thing about meat, despite having lived in Iowa my entire life. I didn't. I I had only been when I started, I'd only been eating meat about four or five years. So you know, I was like this. I, I knew nothing, which is what I prefer. I prefer to write a book I don't know anything about. Anyway. My previous book, A History of Beer in America, came out in October of 2006. Weirdly, the very same week that Omnivore's Dilemma came out. And I was busy trying to promote the book, beer book and thinking about beer at the time, and I was oblivious to just completely oblivious to Omnivore's Dilemma, and it wasn't until I'd been working on the book for a couple of years that it started to, you know, I kind of came up out of my my hole, my little cave in the past where I where I mostly live. And notice, oh, I oh, I see people are talking about meat. There's a controversy. Oh, this book, okay, so you know it it just t- total total weird coincidence that that book, which has had a tremendous impact on the conversation about meat in America in the last seven years, you know i i I did not literally did not know about that book when I set out to write this one. I had no clue. it's all a weird coincidence. and so yes, i I have read his book. And yes, he he dates the whole um, commercial cattle feedlot thing to World War II because of these big nasty corporations and horrible agricultural subsidies. And I understand that he's not a historian, so I guess yeah. we'll forgive him for not bothering to check the facts.
0: No, no, no absolutely. I mean, that's. A, I mean, you make a very important point. And um, when you read these type of books nowadays, you know, we we learn critical thinking in our you know in college courses nowadays, and. I'm sure you know that as well, obviously, because you're a very educated woman. Um, it, it's important to know that because, you no, know, it's not to invalidate what Paulin's saying in his book. He has some very important ideas that need to be expressed, but he's also a journalist. He's a food what? journalist who is crafting a story based off of information he's got. Now, yes, did he double check it? Probably. No, he, he should have done a little bit further research. I'm sure there is some evidence to support a correlation between health in america with the using of nitrates in foods which he talks quite a bit about in the beginning of his book but it's interesting. it's good to know that it's not all from there that the, the habit goes back way further now i'm curious though around the urbanization of of america do we start to see things like health change of, of the average american because of the way we're, we're grazing our meat like what does that look like
2: well, those uh, we'll, I'll just I'm just going to separate those two things, and you'll okay. understand why when I when I start explaining them. What one thing here, here's one thing that did kind of startle me, and it ended up being a, a crucial foundation for the way the book unfolded as as I worked. And again, uh, you know, I, I'm doing research right. I'm spending <laughs> seven years doing this research, and and I try to work chronologically, so I don't really know how the story ends until I get to the end. But what I figured out right off the bat was that the key to understanding meat in America was twofold. One was the sense of entitlement that I talked about earlier, but the second one, it became pretty clear to me after working on, you know, just after about a year of research, it became a very powerful thematic device is the fact that we live in an urban nation, you know, A, that's pretty obvious because 85 or 90% of us live in in an urban place, but but the thing about urbanites that is so obvious that I think all of us overlook it is that they're by definition people who don't make their own food. And, you know, I understand urban gardening is very cool, blah, blah, but in a general, if you have an urban society, you've got to have some way to supply food to them. And that became the means or the lens through which I was able to look at meat and the way, um, urban consumers have shaped the demand for meat and the way we produce meat. So, so that was a, like this pivotal moment for Americans when it came to meat, with the move off the off the farm into the town.
1: Well, I find it fascinating that much of uh, much of the cattle industry in America today really came about almost by accident. And I know I'm just kind of changing gears a little bit here, but I, I find it so fascinating that in the 1830s, most of the cattle who were in the Americas in North America uh, were on the rancheros of, of Mexican farmers when that was still Mexican territory. After Mexico left, essentially after the Mexican-American War and after we had taken over so much territory in America, uh, the cattle was pretty much still there. The cows didn't go with them. The cows more or less stayed with us. Right. Uh, and then as you move into the, the post-Civil War period where we are going and rebuilding our nation and bringing that back together, we suddenly discover that all these cattle who have been living there for a long time uh, were multiplying, and we could actually take advantage of having all of these cows now and, and put them into some sort of area where we could breed them, and we could control that breeding, and we could create a population of cows to support this now- building and growing population in america uh and you know my great-grandfather who was a or great-great-grandfather excuse me who was a cattle farmer here in california he came over from the azores in the 1860s and spent a little time trying to figure out what he was going to do but by the time the 1880s had rolled around now the cattle industry had actually made its way all the way out to california by that point and he opened up a cattle ranch and maintained that for you know 30 40 years uh, here in in the uh, in the greater San Jose area.
2: Interesting. Yeah, um, yeah. The, the, yes, there were a lot of a, a great many cattle left in what is roughly now southern Texas. Now, all, all, but all the way across that part of the Gulf Coast. Um, Because the Spanish used to use the port at New Orleans to ship their hides, which which is primarily what they wanted them for. They weren't particularly, you know, they didn't care that much about the, the meat part of it. The interesting thing is that the same impulse that drove Americans into that conflict and which led to Texas eventually becoming part of the United States was um, shaped in part by the fact that cities on the East Coast were growing so quickly and supplying food to those cities had become increasingly problematic as early as the eight, early 1850s people were already driving cattle up out of Texas and trying to and and literally driving them and feeding them off and on as they drove them all the way to New York because at that time meat packing, slaughtering was was urban so the animals were taken all the way to the East Coast from Texas and and uh, during the Civil War, the the supplies of meat were often short, as they also were in the 1850s. Food food in general often ran short in the 1850s in cities because if there was, for example, a bad snowstorm that blocked railroad tracks, well, there went the food supplies from the West that were needed to feed the East. So the the cattle industry in Texas and Montana and Wyoming, in particular, in Kansas, in Oklahoma was shaped in large measure by the demands of urbanites on the East Coast.
0: Interesting. Yeah. You mentioned that the cattle industry is what led to Texas becoming a state, and I just think about gee, the US government annexed a state and they wanted something in return? I'm shocked. <laughs> I'm utterly shocked. I mean, that's yeah, been Obviously
2: pr- cattle wasn't the only issue, but that, but that same impulse of, um, you know, the West was intended in the early, in the, in the 19th century, it was intended to be that, um, what was it that Frederick Jackson Turner called it, the relief valve, you know, it was supposed to take this overflow, because cities on the East Coast were growing very, very quickly And urban growth, of course, devours land, which was sending people deeper and deeper into the hinterland, and that kept pushing more people even further west. So all of that stuff was tied up, and of course, all those people have to be fed. So it's you know, it's cause and effect is almost impossible to to you know unravel in this case.
0: Yeah. Now that we understand that, uh, let's take it into the 20th
1: century, if we, if we can, unless there's a piece we're missing. Um, well, I have one quick question, oh, okay, because considering the amount of French uh, and German immigrants who are in this country, why is horse meat not accepted as being a <clears throat> a culturally acceptable meat in America? Because I'll tell you, my my ancestry, again, some of it also comes from from France. And during the Second World War, my grandfather, who... Uh, you know, was just trying to survive and have his family survive, was looking to any meat source or any food source available. And horse meat at the time was only being used to feed pets. I mean, you can pick it up for pet food. But he had no qualms with eating it at all. No problem at all. And he would serve horse meat all the time that he would pick up through his ration cards and it was very inexpensive to get a hold of. And my grandfather and grandmother and father and they, they ate well. They ate well on horse meat. But why do we not have uh, more of a cultural acceptance of that in America as a whole?
2: Because we are the people who have everything, including beef. Mm, yeah. Mm-hmm. People didn't eat horse if they didn't need to. And, of course, in Europe, particularly during war... Horses were a food of last last resort. Americans never faced that problem. There's a real simple reason we don't. So, you know, over time, it became a cultural taboo. Obviously, there's nothing wrong with eating horse. But in the United States, we're the people who don't have to resort to eating horse because we are the people who have an alternative.
0: Well, I mean, it, it makes sense because I think in America, we've grown up with a different perception of horses. We've never thought of them as animals to be eaten we've thought of them as mostly not even as work animals anymore now they're they're things you hop on and you ride and you build relationships with and you take with you to the yeah. olympic games you know you don't you don't think of them as saying dinner you know um even though horse beef is another term that is used for horse meat because it's a it's a red meat you know it's um i was looking at it and it there's a lot of consumption in mongolia I think no, Mongolia is the leading really. is the leading country uh, that consumes horse meat, so um, it's definitely a uniquely American concept that we're really not okay with the the concept of eating horse. So um, that being said, though, I mean, Eric, you bring up the need for eating horse meat, and I think those are all things that are drawn out of two things: one, the depression, and two, the war effort. You know, yeah. the fact that when we have to pump food to the troops, uh, we of course we all have to you know make sacrifices. So I'm actually very curious to know how does that story take a turn when we get to the 20th century? Because that's where you said where it gets really, really interesting.
2: I'll just back up it, because because okay. you're right. We're, especially World War II has had a, tr- had a tremendous impact on, uh, on meat, and a huge impact on meat in America. But w- one of the factors that um, has shaped the way meat is made in this country was, again, that urbanization in the late 19th century. And that's where people like Gustavus Swift and Philip Armour got into the picture. They were the ones who decided instead, instead of shipping that cattle from you know Texas to Kansas City and then from Kansas City to New York City why don't we ship it to Kansas City and slaughter it there and then send that carcass to New York City and that that really altered you know the terms of engagement because up until then meat slaughter and meat livestock sales I mean meat livestock sales had all been very much urban practices and, and at that point, um, meatpacking in particular began its long migration out of the city, out to where it is now in the country. But by the early 20th century, those meatpackers had built nationwide networks of re- cold refrigerated cars and um ice depots and warehouses and distributors and so on and so forth and they were hauling not just meat products but for for example most of the produce being produced in California was being canned by the meat packers and then shipped to the east coast so they had this enormous physical infrastructure for moving perishable goods in effect which really? is yeah so it, that's one of the reasons they got themselves into so much trouble and uh, Upton Sinclair, for example, thought they were you know the meat packers were evil incarnate as did many other people. Um, it, it, in part because farmers were ha- now I'm really making the story complicated, but in part because um, American farmers were having an extreme difficulty trying to keep pace with all the urban demand. That, that's why the meat packers were creating this system because they're trying to supply these cities, which were growing like crazy. And um, so the meat packers have this national system urbanites are demanding cheap food, farmers can't keep pace, Um, and from that comes uh, uh, hostility toward the meatpackers, which is how Upton Sinclair eventually got into it. To me, that was sort of a minor episode. But the meatpackers created this national system, and Americans developed an even greater sense of entitlement, because, you know, all this food should be processed as cheaply as possible and shipped to us as conveniently as possible. And um, during World War I, when the United States was trying to, su- to supply their friends abroad, uh, high pr- meat prices in the United States soared astronomically, and there were uh, meat mm. riots, and Congress, President Wilson, you know, ordered an investigation into the matter, and so on and so forth. Um, during World War II, the problem was actually quite different, but had even bigger consequences and that was during World War two by that time farm farming numbers had had plunged as you might imagine the more people who move to cities the fewer farmers there are and so those few remaining farmers must become very very efficient and during World War two they were really taxed to the limit to try to make food for the allies make food for the troops virtually all the meat that was produced in the US was handed over to the troops and civilians were left to eat chicken which is when the first really big commercial poultry industry took shape. So mm. warfare cast, in fact had a had an impact on meat in America.
0: Wow. Wow. You know, you, you were talking about how they were bringing it breaking down how they where they move the cow to how they slaughter it and how they move it to the next phase of where it's being sent to. Then I think about it and like it's basically an assembly line. It's an assembly line that's for manufacturing food basically. And yeah just and that's fascinating to talk about how because I think about how much chicken we eat in our diet nowadays and th- to think that that came from, from the war effort. That's, that's really, really fascinating. That's really interesting.
2: Yeah. Chicken is, um, much cheaper to produce than either, especially cheaper than beef and even cheaper than pork, which is pretty inexpensive to relatively speaking, you know, hogs are relatively simple to produce, but chickens are even simpler. Um, and, uh, during the nineteen seventies there were new sets of ideas about heart disease and health and cholesterol and so on and so forth and beef that's when beef consumption began to decline in the united states and as americans abandoned beef they embraced poultry and in nineteen eighty seven for the first time americans ate more poultry than they did beef and beef has never recovered you know it went from being you know the center of the plate the you know the thing that made us who we are we were beef eaters to, and now it runs uh, second place to poultry, because yeah. poultry is lower in saturated fats.
0: Which is a whole other argument. <laughs> right. Yeah. Uh, it's funny, because I'm sure that's when those commercials, you know, beef, it's what's for dinner, probably started okay. to come around, because they were desperate for, for sales. That's
2: exactly right. That's yeah. right. Pork, <laughs> the other white meat, was a direct response to the fact that, as one guy said, uh, I don't think he said cleaning our clock, but something like, you know, those chicken producers, they're, you know, I don't think he said cleaning their clock, but... Basically, they realized that that poultry was just taking over both pork and beef, and they did scramble to try to keep places. And, and as I said, beef consumption has plunged by, oh, I don't know, half since the late 1970s. I mean, I know people complain that we eat too much beef today, but we eat way less beef than we did 30 or 40 years ago.
1: Yeah. Well, you know what it is? It's those damn Foster Farms chickens. They're so so charming. Uh, <laughs> exactly. and, and there's There is just absolutely no charming beef mascots out there. There really aren't. (laughs) It's true. Uh, You know, uh, Maureen, this is a little embarrassing, but every once in a while we have this uh, vortex that has been uh, created in our nerd cave uh, from excessive use of our time machine, our, our TARDIS. And as well, a result... You I mean, can't say that word. It's, it's trademarked oh, by the BBC. That's right. Sorry, BBC, yeah. So yeah, It's right right now our, our chronological device. Yes, our TARDIS. Our TARDIS. Um, and as such, uh, we, we do from time to time have a, a visitor from the past come and join us. And uh, we do have a very special guest tonight. We have uh, John Fitzgerald Kennedy, who is here to, to talk to us just briefly about one of our sponsors. Yeah, uh, yes, that's, that's right. Thank you very much, Eric. I have come uh, from, from time to speak to you just for a moment about Amazon.com. Amazon is an amazing place where you can buy, among other things, books, you can buy music, and you can buy things related perhaps even to me, JFK. I will say, however, if you do this, if you make this choice, remember, you do it, not because it is hard, but because it is easy thank you <laughs> thank you mr president we we always appreciate a stop by by jfk uh but mr president before you go i just i am wondering if you clear up a, just a, a few things about marilyn monroe i uh uh you know i have um i have a, a golf game with uh, joe dimaggio and uh uh yeah i i i uh, need to go goodbye all right well well thank you there you have it <laughs> well uh, that was
0: an interesting uh, Interesting appearance, to say the least. Yeah, who knew JFK enjoys... Uh... Apparently heads of government just like to come to our uh, our nerd cave, because we had Winston Churchill on last week. That's right, we did have Winston Churchill so on last we week. So we know, folks, look, maybe next week we'll have Margaret Thatcher on, we'll see.
1: Oh, too soon. <laughs> too, too soon. Too soon? Really?
0: Oh, okay. I mean, it's not that bad. It's not like, not, not like I'm insulting her memory <laughs> or anything. Oh, she, oh, so she's just freshly dead? Is, it, is that what it is? is she's <laughs> yes. she, She's not dead enough that we can have <laughs> her on? She
1: died just last year, so I think we should perhaps... Oh, Wait a little fine. bit for Margie, okay? For Margot, let's not have her on just yet. <sighs> that and some of our British listeners may hate us, so let's 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 not do that. I don't know how
0: hip the average British person is on Margaret Thatcher, but you no, know, our listeners in the UK, please enlighten us, please. But. There are many non-conservative British people who were not fans of the Thatcher government. So, so that,
1: that's all I'm saying. We don't we, we don't want any hate mail. We that's fine. That's mail. fine. Positive I don't mail. want to
0: push it. I don't want to push it. Okay. So getting let's back. Get,
1: yeah. Let's get back to our yeah, let's guests. Let's get back
0: buddies. to. Uh, <laughs> thank you for uh, waiting so patiently, Marina. As we had that's President okay. Kennedy in our in our room. Well,
1: what an honor for you to be on with 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 JFK on this. episode. I'm sure you
0: would have loved to ask him some questions, but he just he was so pressed for time. So um, uh, what what I do want to actually want to take it from here is. I want to know a little bit more about how the organic movement uh, plays into the story at this point, because I think, correct me if I'm wrong here, the organic movement kind of starts to take effect in the 1970s, right around when the uh, tail end of the civil rights movement and the tail end of the, the peace movement and things like that. So, where, how does that impact the, the story?
2: Well, I, again, I I uh, didn't really know that much about meat or this debate about food or meat or anything else until I started this book. So, So, that was a big topic that I realized I was gonna to have to research and curse my fellow historians it was yet another topic on which they have done no research so that, which is one reason it took seven years to do this book because there were all these things that I had to dig up from scratch and the last two chat well really the last two and a half chapters of the book look at the roots of that and indeed um we can safely date today's uh, local organic, natural, whatever food movement back to the late '60s and early '70s. Although in this case, the most direct sort of parent of that weirdly turned out to be Ralph Nader of all people. <laughs> Who would have guessed? You know, I so I, I ended up learning quite a bit about Ralph Nader. He he, um, aside from pissing off a whole lot of people by running for president. I, I did determine that, in fact, he had an extraordinary amount of influence on uh, political activists, particularly ones who were interested in things like um, consumer advocacy in the 1960s and 1970s. And it was because of him that a critique of rural America began, and um, in particular, a critique of the so-called corporate uh, farmers and industrial agriculture. So that all got wrapped up together with also um, a struggle against urban poverty by another group of people who'd been influenced by Ralph Nader. And over time, um, what began as kind of a fringe movement to, to create, in effect, a sort of alternative economy uh, morphed into this, dare I say it, um, very chic mode of eating local, organic and nowhere, you know, where, where did that face with the eyes that you're about to eat? Where did it come from and what was its name before it was slaughtered? Right. So yeah, I, I, um, it was, it's very interesting. So I, I go into a lot of detail about that toward the end of the book.
0: Wow. Ralph Nader. Who knew? Yeah. Who knew? (laughs) Go figure. Well, okay. So I'm, I'm curious now, now that you've, you've brought it up. Uh, now that you've kind of looked at the research and you've we've brought things to pretty much the the contemporary era, I think the question for our listeners is now: is well, what do we do with that information? You know, um, obviously we want our listeners to go and check out your book because it's it sounds, it sounds very insightful and also at the forefront of this topic. What I'd like to to ask you is kind of where do you feel it's going to go from here, based off of what we already know? How to do-
2: well. That's a good question. You know, I, I really didn't write this book because I have any skin in the game, one or the other. I'm not a pollinist. You know, I'm not a Paul, Michael Pollan acolyte, and I'm not a, a supporter of industrial agriculture. I, you know, I, I I'm not taking sides here. I uh, what I really hope is that people who are taking sides, and many people are taking sides, and are very adamant in their views will read this book and actually get a better understanding, you know, if, if all you know about meat and our meat system is what you learn from reading Omnivore's Dilemma, then you've got a very, very lopsided view of our food system in general and our meat-making system in particular, very lopsided. And also, that lopsided view is it has shaped suggestions for change that... Like, for example, um, many critics of our food system say, well, we, we should just raise all of our livestock on pasture. We shouldn't have any more confinement operations. Everything should be, you know, they should all eat organic feed and all of the meat should be organic. And and we should have small family farms because that's what Michael Pollan suggests in his book. I mean, in the end, that's what he comes to at the, at the end of Omnivore's Dilemma. And I'm just here to tell you, that is grossly impractical. If you're going to, if you want to make change, you're going to have to figure out, you're going to have to offer practical alternatives to the system we have, because the system we have has been built up over generation after generation after generation to serve a very specific need, namely urban consumers who demand absolutely demand cheap food <clears throat> and and that's why we eat 225 pounds a year of meat on average per capita uh, you know we, we have the sense of entitlement we've built this system and it's really easy for us to indulge and as long as that demand remains the same it's going to be very difficult to change the system and just having turning I mean you can't how you can't possibly turn all those that livestock back to pasture because We haven't got enough land, and we also haven't got enough farmers. A a big driving factor behind the meat system we have today is the fact that there are so few farmers, not because they've been driven off the land, but because most Americans want to live in town. So we have to have practical alternatives to this system, and i got to tell you that hipster farmers who used to be investment bankers, you know, living on their little farm in Vermont, it's not going to do it. It's There's no way that's ever going to be enough for a society as big as ours.
0: Well, yeah, it does bring up the whole word uh, sustainable, you know, and and there is that argument, right, that that the model we have right now is how much more sustainable is it going to be? And then, of course, you're you're bringing up the point as well, the solution isn't very sustainable either, uh, at least not the way that Paul is suggesting it, so...
2: That's right. That's right. I mean, the word sustainable gets used by everybody and frankly doesn't mean diddly squat anymore. And, I, you know, if nobody ever says that word to me again, I'd be happy. I, I, You know, what we should be looking for are practical alternatives because the system we have right now, given the demand, not just in the United States, but globally, because a big chunk of the American meat industry is structured to supply the rest of the world with meat. Given that demand, the system we have right now is actually extraordinarily sustainable and very, very efficient. So the way to change it is to change demand, and I'm not sure how you do that.
0: Yeah, that's, yeah. that's more of an economical question, I think.
1: Well, it's also a cultural question, too. I mean, it is, uh, as we've established, something has been built into uh, America, and our pride is being Americans. I mean, that's uh, right. how many of us see uh, that 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 image of that steak with that fork stuck in it, you know, and, and that is very much true to, to the American dream, right? That you can put that steak on your table by being an American and the, the iconic representation that, yeah, all Americans love to eat cheeseburgers and hamburgers. Well, you know what? The truth is we do. Uh, we, we have built this enormous fast food industry and we don't want it to go away. We get upset when it changes in any way, shape or form. And it may be something more dramatic and it may be something along the lines of, 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 Climatic change that will that will bring that to uh, to the forefront. But eventually, if people really want it to be different, they're going to have to come up with some sort of alternative, some way to find a middle ground that that will please everybody. And I don't think anyone here is that person to provide that answer. And who knows when that answer will be? But um, education has always been the the best friend to to this world. And the more educated people are about the the process, the more educated people are about what is going on and, and the industry itself uh, that is when minds will start to change. And if enough people can do that, then I agree. I think right. things can, can yeah. change.
0: I mean, I can see how contemporarily things like that are are starting to change. Uh, the big thing is, you know, we all know about food network now because of you know, stuff like iron chef and Alton Brown and Bobby Flay and all these big names in the food world you know, they have their sister channel now, Cooking Channel, which was predominantly Canadian uh, programming at first because that's all they really could fill the time with. But their whole thing is about trying to make ads about the slow food movements, you know, things a, bit, a lot of, again, very pollinist kind of, kind of things. Right. Uh, right. And, and they're not so much trying to push the organic uh, lifestyle on anybody, but they're trying to bring up those questions and talk about, you know, bring up the awareness of, of how we think about food. And I think that's probably where it really starts, is we have to if we if we can have that conversation about it, um, maybe that's where it begins. And it's also, there's so many other questions that get brought up too, because, you know, even bringing it down to, okay, we must all go vegetarian. We must have no more meat. First off, that's not healthy. But second of all, like if we were to even to go just to locally grown farmers markets and things like that, I mean, I, I hate to say it, but you no, know, it's expensive. You know, those vegetables are sometimes twice the cost of what you would pay for in a grocery store. And, uh, you know, the American public being entitled, as we've already established, you know, they love to talk about how we vote with our wallets. And so, like, no one will want to pay for that. So I see exactly what you're talking about, why we need to have a
1: practical solution. And it's going to take some real... um, wizardry to figure out how we pull that off. Well, I'm going to be the real nerd on Nerds on History here for a moment and just say that 3D printing is evolving in such an amazing way. And I, You're thinking I'm <laughs> making a joke. It's absolutely true though, that they're moving into the 3D printing of food.
2: Yeah, yeah. Uh, the whole, I was going to say, the the big thing right now is to hack meat, so-called, you know, H-A-C-K, hack meat. Um, mm-hmm. Figure out how to grow a substitute that, for all intents, you know, if you bite into it, you won't know the difference. Remember that guy And I think it was September, the, the Dutch guy with his last Laboratory grown burger, yeah. So, Uh and and some people are trying to figure out how to use 3D printers to replicate the structure and, and you know, presumably at some point the taste of meat. So, a a lot of people are looking at those kinds of things. Although, as I pointed out in a piece that was published on Slate a few months ago, that's nothing new. (laughs) I, I used the example of a guy back in the 1890s who was trying to do the same thing. So the idea of you know cheap laboratory meat we'll put that word in quote marks is it's not, a, it's not a new vision but yeah but yeah. with
1: technology as it is now and, and it's ever uh, ever growing nature and it's ever expanding nature there could very well be a real time within our lifetimes where we are able to uh, we're able to do that realistically and come up with something that really tastes and looks right. and even maybe smells dare right. i say
2: you like know, me. Best Capital is being, you know, wooed by stuff like this. The, the people who are interested in these things aren't just working in their garages. They're actually getting funding for it. So that's right. During yeah. our time, it could happen.
1: Well, thanks to crowdsourcing, anyone can found any idea and any project at this point. So, you know, the, the future is now, as they say. And we'll, we'll see what happens. I'm still not ready to eat 3D printed pizza. I'm just, I'm just declaring that, but I'm excited about work. again. Yeah, I mean, folks, can you imagine 3D printed
0: steak? Yeah, just like mom used to make. Yeah. <laughs> you know? I'm still
2: trying to get over the 3D printed pizza. Ooh, I don't know. It wouldn't yeah. be as good as the pizza I make, I'm pretty sure. You guys but- can
0: take your 3D printer. I'm going to go raise goats and bison up in Maine. <laughs> <laughs> up in Vermont, sorry. <laughs> I'm going to raise them up in Vermont. Bye.
1: <laughs> Thank you, Alan. Yes, definitely. He's been very vocal this episode. He's he's a little more vocal than usual.
0: Yeah, well, I think he feels a little
1: incited. You know? Yeah, I think he does. <laughs> <laughs>
0: So there you go. Well, Maureen, uh, thank you so much for uh, offering to come on the show. We, we, we're we grateful that we've had a chance to sit and talk with you, and you've really kind of intrigued us about the topic. Um, and we hope that you, our listeners, have also been uh, intrigued. Again, the, the book that we are talking about, uh, In Meat We Trust, An Unexpected History of Carnivore America – uh, it is available on Amazon.com, and of course, uh, as President Kennedy has mentioned, you should go there, and if you click on the link that we post in our episode, we will get a small commission off of that, or anything you get off of Amazon.com,
1: Helps that support us here and all the nerdy things that we do on Nerdonomy.com.
0: Exactly, and Maureen's website, maureenogle.com, M-A-U-R-E-E-N-O-G-L-E.com, has uh, the resources where you can find all these great Q&As where she's talked about um food developers you can see her other books on uh beer and plumbing and key west of course uh from there
1: and you could, of course also follow her on facebook and twitter
0: yeah she's at marine ogle i just outed you on twitter i'm sorry if that's okay
2: sure no. yeah i love twitter <laughs>
0: yeah
1: twitter's great even alan loves twitter
0: it's, it's true yeah exactly yeah cool and so folks uh as usual you know, we thank you for listening to our episode and uh aside from Amazon, we still have our donate button. If you'd like to go to neuronbee.com and click on that donate button at the top bar there, we would appreciate any sort of support you can give us.
1: And of course, you can also follow us on uh, on Twitter and like us on Facebook, where you can hear all these uh, great topics that we bring up from time to time in conversation on our pages. And of course, I think we'll, we'll this might be a good conversation for uh, when this episode goes live. We might have to throw a few Facebook uh, comments. Yeah, out we, there we've this got way. a
0: couple of fans, uh, particularly who'd be very interested in debating debating this topic <laughs> so mm,
2: probably yeah. so uh,
0: maureen you may get some retweets you might get some mentions uh just so it could it could be very interesting for that record by the way i'm at brian moriarty on twitter i'm at the brookmont and if you don't know our company twitter handle uh, it's at Erdonomy. shocking i know until next time stay nerdy and tune in to us next week same nerd time same nerd channel nerdonomy.com
1: God, talking about food just has made me so hungry. You want to go get something to eat? Yeah, yeah. I could use a bite.
0: Mmm. Ooh,
1: I've got it. Salad bar. Really? Yeah. Yeah, all right. Sean Moriarty from Nerds on Film here to talk to you about Audible.com.
0: Audible.com has thousands of audiobooks for your listening enjoyment. And if you're like me, you enjoy hearing things rather than reading them. I mean, that's why we all listen to podcasts, right? So... If you go to our website and go to either the blog or the podcast section and click on any of our blog posts or episode posts, you'll be able to see an audible.com banner. If you click on that and sign up for a 30-day trial, you'll get a free audiobook and you'll also give us a little bit of money. And we need money. We need it really bad. I need an operation on my sense of humor. It's seriously starting to damage people. So go to our website, nerdonomy.com, click on the podcast or the blogs and... Help us out.